This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this episode, the theatrical legend that is Martin Jarvis. Ages ago, he wrote a memoir called Acting Strangely. And although he reached the dizzy heights of celebrity and stardom, it wasn't always thus. There were some bad days. Uh, it had started pretty badly because I had got a singing role as the turkey seller. I was a ASM, assistant stage manager, and uh, turkey seller in the chorus of Scrooge, which is the musical version of Christmas Carol, at the Pembroke Theatre in the Round in Croydon. And I was 17 and a half years old, uh, maybe just 18. And um, I had to sing in the chorus, come along mister, come along do, here's a prize winning turkey that's made for you. And I couldn't sing, and they put this thing in front of me. John Finch, actually, was the stage manager who uh, became a bit of a film star for a time, and um, uh, he put the script in front of me. There, you've got to sing that. And when it came to the read-through, of course, I, I couldn't read the music, and, and it was a bit like the yodel. Come along, mister. Um, luckily, a, friend, man, a good friend of mine afterwards, John Baddeley, rescued me on that. But I also had this great part, no speaking, just pointing a lot to the future, the ghost of Christmas future. And I had to build my own inner costume, which was, as you say, um, a sort of cage of chicken wire that was balanced on my shoulders and it was a head made out of the chicken wire that came up very high. So it made me about eight foot tall and I wore this vast monk's costume over the top with a cowl. And it was quite effective. I also had on a rod, um, a long pink finger on this stick, made, and the finger was made of papier-mâché, and that was the finger that pointed to the future. And um, I had to, uh, at a certain point, Scrooge had to um, clutch me and say, Oh, spirit, tell me not this is the future, what shall I do? And I then crumbled up. What I did was to crouch down uh, so that he was left holding under the monk's costume the cage of chicken wire while I'd crouched onto the floor, and then he'd let it go, and it would all crumble away. A tremendous effect. Um, and then I had to, to use a theatrical expression, strike myself, in other words, get myself off stage in the quick blackout before the next scene came on. And I did it quite well um, for a few nights until the ghastly night when, feeling my way in the dark, I missed my way. Instead of feeling the wooden panelling that would take me off stage, because it was theatre in the round, in the square, really, I found that I was touching people's knees, you know, like that. And people were going, ah, get off, get off! And um, it turned out I was running along the front row of the audience. And uh, I thought, God, the um, uh, lights are coming up in a minute. Uh, but somehow I found a door, not the door that I always went through, but another door that went clang and bash, and I found myself out in the street. Um, and uh, God, God, got rid of all my, my stuff, um, uh, which was bundled under my arm, my chicken wire, and my long finger. Of course, I was only got my underpants underneath this fetid outfit. And the audience, I could see, were looking at me through the open door. I'd gone through the crash doors at the side of the theatre by mistake. So I think I'm probably the only actor to ever to have, with his costume bundled under his arm, walk round to the stage door, which was locked, and press the bell, and asked to be let in to the back <laughs> of my own, of the theatre. So that was a, um, a definite failure. Um, uh, uh, so it could only go up from there. But your story's at RADA. You were there. I mean, was it a good time? It seems to be you know, a lot of time. talented 
characters yeah. there at the same time. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I met uh, so many wonderful people there. Our teachers, Peter Barkworth and Clifford Turner, who's the voice teacher, you know, wonderful <coughs> mellifluous voice. Uh, and my fellow student, I mean, on the first day I met um, this chap in the locker room. Uh, he, he said to me, uh, uh, where, you know, what, where have you come from? What's your hometown? I said, Croydon. He said, you, you, you can't call that a hometown. It's a dormitory suburb. He was right, of course. <laughs> um, and uh, I said, Where's, what's your hometown? He said, Salford. I said, oh, Salford. Um, isn't that where um, uh, Albert Finney was uh, at school, Salford Grammar School? He said, yes. He said, as a matter of fact, um, he said modestly, uh, I had a very round, chubby face. As a matter of fact, a lot of people uh, tell me I look a little bit like Albie. Um, and this was uh, Mike Lee, Mike Lee. Yeah. Uh, who uh, is, as we know, the most incredible creator and devisor, director of his own particular, in his own particular style. These are remarkable uh, movies now. Uh, but he began uh, as a comic actor. And uh, I always felt that uh, his, the brilliance what he achieved later on in terms of creating things through improvisation, which then became crystallized at a certain point, uh, working with the actors to find the script, the truth of the script, then to crystallize it as you would if you had written a script, uh, seemed to begin with the classes we had from Peter Barkworth um, in improvisation. Barkworth, a very different sort of actor, um, a great the, the accomplished technical actor, we would give her one class a week in improvisation. And he'd give us these incredible scenarios, very often two-handed scenarios, which we would improvise for half an hour, an hour. Um, and it released us all, I think, in terms of behavior. So we didn't have to think about our lines and our moves. We just thought about the relationship between characters. And um, I, I often think that um, that initial um, way of approaching character and incident and behavior for, uh, given to us by Peter Barkworth, brilliant teacher, could well have ignited the first spark uh, in the Mike genius Lee. of Mike Lee. Listening that, that to your voice, and your voice has been part of your fortune, hasn't it? Did, that, did you discover that at RADA, or did you already know that, <laughs> it, was, that it was a potential? I, I didn't know um, uh, that, um, and I still don't think about the voice. Um, I try to think always about the character, and uh, I, I see um, the people, the person, the character I'm playing in my mind, and, uh, and that's the, the thing that starts it off, and the voice follows. I think if you start to think about the voice as I'm now doing, you, it becomes a little bit sort of ridiculous. But um, uh, I can remember Mr. Turner, Clifford Turner, um, <laughs> he gave us classes in, in uh, poetry reading sometimes. And uh, um, I very foolishly, one class, chose to do Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn. I didn't know at the time that Clifford Turner was uh, known to be one of the great verse speakers of, of his day. So there I was, um, uh, trying to do, do this wonderful uh, poem. And um, uh, he sat there very quietly while I went on and on. <laughs> Finally finished, and he just sat there, and then he laughed, a bit like Wilfred Hyde White. You know, he said, ah, 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 ah. He said, nice try. He said, nice try. But he was a great teacher. And he did say at one stage, uh, I, heard I heard somebody told me, he'd said of me, oh, that boy Jarvis, great voice. Don't know where it comes from, but great voice. <laughs> <laughs> when you got the, the first sniff of fame and fortune, was that 
Foresight Saga, the, the telly? Uh, uh, not fortune. I think I, I think I got 60 quid an episode, as far as I can remember. Wasn't um, that a lot of money uh, in those days? It, <laughs> not, not even in those days. It wasn't bad for a young actor, but not very good. But um, it, was, um, uh, it was great to do it. And, um, uh, and as I, I say in the book, it, it was a wonderful um, thing for, to happen to me because there I was suddenly playing one of the starring roles in this uh, series that uh, stopped the nation in terms of... Um, Everybody had to watch it, you know, and it was repeated um, once a, a week. And um, uh, they stopped the church services or changed even songs. People weren't turning up to church because it was on at six o'clock or seven o'clock, whatever it was. Uh, so it was fabulous to be in and to work with actors like Kenneth Moore and Eric Porter and the young uh, Susan Hampshire, who played Fleur. I played John, and she she was Fleur, and. I learned a tremendous amount from all of them, uh, and uh, and certainly yes, it did bring my face and name to the attention of a huge television viewing public because there were only a couple of channels. Yeah. So every, you know, if you didn't watch one channel, you watched the other channel. It wasn't quite like today, um, but um, it did have its downside because uh, I found it very difficult to deal with at first, just to be pointed out in the street uh, all the time, you know, and um, being surrounded by. Um, uh, uh, girls, um, oh, and, you know. Oh, you. And, um, uh, <laughs> How did you cope? Uh, at first, not very well. I, I found it very difficult to to enjoy it, um, and um, because I was actually, uh, you mentioned the voice. I I was secretly going through a great problem with uh, with with my uh, um, voice because of things that had happened to me. I had got uh, tumours and things that. I, uh, nobody quite recognised, least of all myself. I knew there was something wrong. So I was having to, in a way, uh, get up to a lot of tricks to make sure that I could still film on the right day and uh, with a lot of medication. So all that uh, uh, conspired, in a way, to um, m make me over-anxious about um, working and making sure it was okay and not telling anybody. Uh, so when I worked through all that, which I did, um, took a couple of years, then I was able to kind of enjoy my work much more. You now live in this country and America. Well, I live, I live in, in London, um, and, uh, uh, but I do go to, I have a house in, in America, in West Hollywood, and uh, I do go backwards and forwards and work there and work here, yeah. Being there, does it make you, what does it, I mean, you, you're not mid-Atlantic, are you? You're not American. Does it make you more English being there? <laughs> Uh, I hope not. There are some people out there, the expatriates, some of them who really do remind me of sort of Somerset Maugham and Hong Kong in the old days, you know. <laughs> oh, my dear Martin, yes, we can chew to pig down at the St. James's Club. And more English than English. I think I'm, hope I'm uh, just the same. So, but certainly in terms of some of the parts I've played in America, um, there is a, a feeling, um, again, I, I've tried to put it in, in acting strangely, what it feels like to be a British actor working in, particularly in television, sometimes in films in, in America. Um, for instance, I went onto the set of a, a film I did quite recently, um, The X-Ray Kid, a very sweet and charming little film directed by um, Fred Olin Ray, who's a sort of horror film cult director. And um, uh, I went onto the set uh, in search of the director on my very first day, I went straight onto the set, and the first assistant director was there who I hadn't worked with before, and um, uh, he looked at me quite blankly, and, uh, and then I opened my mouth and I started to say, "Oh, excuse me, um, I wonder if." And before I could get any more words out, he stopped me and said, and turned and called to, "Oh, Fred, 
bad guy bosses here. In, in other words, my, with a British accent, clearly I had to be the bad guy bar, boss. Uh, but he made a mistake. I decided not to play it British, uh, but in one of those um, indeterminate middle European accents that uh, you know you tested out by saying, "Good evening, Mr. Bond." And uh, you don't know, quite know where they come from. Maybe Hungary, I don't know. And so I, play, I played it like that. You love doing this, don't you? <laughs> I don't know. I just saw the character. What in my would head. you have done if you hadn't been an actor? I mean, had your family got you down to be an accountant? Not at all. No, um, I had wanted to do something with writing. I'd always want. I'd always enjoyed writing bits and pieces, right, from quite a young age. And uh, there was a time when I thought I might be a journalist, actually. And um, uh, then I thought maybe I would be something to do with publishing. And my father had been at school with um, a, a chap called Tony Hearn, who I think was the literary editor on one of the big London newspapers at the time, possibly being Evening Standard. And um, uh, he, my father took me over, and I can remember on a Sunday morning, to meet Tony Hearn, who um, um, I think was a bit surprised to see his old school friend, Dennis Jarvis, bringing his young son, aged I don't know, maybe 13, um, and I think the idea was that I might have some tips from Tony Hearn as to how I could best approach becoming, getting into publishing newspapers, that sort of thing. Um, but all that was set aside when I was in my first school play, um, when we, we, we did Shakespeare at school, and I auditioned for the part of Juliet. I was about 13, 14. Uh, all boys' school, you know, in the Shakespearean tradition. Everybody, all the boys played um, the parts, and uh, I failed to get the part of Juliet. Uh, but I did get the part of Lady Capulet, Juliet's mum. Martin Jarvis, who in August 2022 has just turned 81, talking about his memoir, Acting Strangely. This is the Author Archive podcast.